Welcome to the American Council of Christian Churches podcast. Since 1941, Bible-believing churches holding to the great fundamental truths of the Word of God, as held by the historic Christian Church, have worked through the ACCC to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Today's podcast is a breakout session given by Dr. Kevin Hobie at the ACCC's 2023 Annual Convention at Faith Baptist Church in Kittery, Maine. Kevin is the pastor of New Boston Baptist Church in New Boston, New Hampshire, and his session was on the subject of biblical revival. So the topic is true revival or biblical revival, and we're going to answer the question, what is revival scripturally? Uh, the genesis for this presentation actually was a request that came to me from the Hill Village Bible Church. Good friend Dan Boyce, who's actually listed on our executive committee, asked me to come and preach on revival. I had never preached on revival before. Uh, haven't experienced a revival in my church, but I was asked to preach on revival. And I Really enjoyed the study, learned a lot, and then in the officers' meeting last February, we had a discussion about what was going on in Kentucky at the time. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but there was a uh, school out there in Kentucky. I don't remember all the details, but the kids would not go back to class. They stayed in the chapel and uh, had a church service for a considerable amount of time, a number of days. How many of you saw that in the news? Anybody? Okay, remember that. So uh, we thought a topic on true revival would be a good thing for our convention here this fall. So there's a couple ways we can answer this question, what is revival? One way is to explain what is happening in our church where we are currently experiencing revival. Jonathan Edwards actually did this in a commencement address he delivered to the faculty and students of Yale University in September 1741. The address was titled, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, Applied to that Uncommon Operation that Has Lately Appeared on the Minds of the People of New England, with a particular consideration of the extraordinary circumstances which, with which this work is attended. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was the pastor of the Church of Christ at Northampton, Massachusetts at the time. And Northampton had existed for just over 80 years. Edwards succeeded his grandfather at the church, Solomon Stoddard, who had pastored the flock of God there for nearly 60 of those 80 years. Imagine uh, uh, succeeding your grandfather and trying to fill those shoes. Uh, the church had experienced a revival in response to a series of messages that Edwards had preached on justification by faith, and uh, he had uh, done so in 1734 and 35. At the time, the pastor was 31 years old, and he had become the pastor of that church five years earlier at the age of 26. In the early 1740s, revival had come again to New England, and Edwards had come to New Haven to explain and even defend what was happening. When his Distinguishing Marks address was published, 
It included a preface uh, to the reader written by a pastor, William Cooper. He was a colleague pastor, they called their assistant pastors back then, or associate pastor of the Brattle Street uh, Church in Boston. His church also had experienced revival. He once declared that uh, about this time that more people had come to him about their souls in one week than had done so in the previous 24 years of his ministry. Pastor Cooper describes the fitness of Jonathan Edwards to uh, the task of explaining what revival is this way. He says, quote, The reverend author is known to be a scribe instructed <coughs> unto the kingdom of heaven. The place where he has been called to exercise his ministry has been famous for experimental religion, and he has had opportunities to observe this work in many places where it has powerfully appeared and to converse with numbers that have been the subjects of it. These things qualify him for this undertaking above most, end quote. So one way to answer the question, what is revival, is to describe the revival that's happened at your church. And wouldn't it be nice if Jonathan Edwards were here this afternoon to answer this question for us, what is revival? I think it would be, <laughs> by the way. Um, but before we come to become too discouraged, that it is me speaking to you about what is revival, and not him, I want us to take comfort in something Edward said uh, and wrote in his ex explanation of what revival is. He said this, quote, My design, therefore, at this time is to show what are the true, certain, and distinguishing evidences of a work of the Spirit of God by which we may safely proceed in judging of any operation we find in ourselves or see in others. And here I would observe that we are to take the scriptures as our guide in such cases, end quote. Edwards pointed his readers to the passage that we just read as he took them to the scriptures to answer the question, what is revival? And that we can do this afternoon. Uh, we may not be able to describe in great detail, as Edwards could, the revival that God gave his church, or our church, uh, but we can go to the scriptures. So as we do so this afternoon, and answer the question, what is revival? I want us to visit what I'm going to call scripture's schoolhouse of revival. And, uh, oops, let's see here. Go. Okay. So there's actually four classes in Scripture's Schoolhouse of Revival, as I'm going to present it here this afternoon. There is an English class, an art class, a math class, and a science class. All right? So we're going to begin with the English class, and here we want to answer the question what does the word revival mean in Scripture? What does the word revival mean in Scripture? Uh, I was taught uh, Hebrew by uh, professors down at Bob Jones University. Randy Yegley was one of those, and uh, Yegley and uh, Hobie uh, have kind of a common descent from Switzerland. We are both from the same town of Winterthur, Switzerland, ultimately, it turns out. But he said something about my Hebrew grade that was very important at the time. He said, uh, really work hard at acing Hebrew vocabulary. And then he said, you can almost teach a chimpanzee 
to learn Hebrew vocabulary. Uh, so I learned from experience that uh, it was harder than he said. <laughs> but uh, we're going to do some vocabulary lesson here. And I hope that uh, we can uh, learn something simple that we can all remember together. So our English word simply comes from the Latin vivo, meaning to live, and the prefix re, meaning again. So revive means to live again. Noah Webster uh, authored his 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language just as the second great awakening of our nation was coming to its close. And he defines the noun revival this way. He says, quote, It is the renewed and more active attention to religion, an awakening of men to their spiritual concerns, end quote. So our New Testaments were originally written in Greek, of course. So as we're asking Scripture, what does revival mean, we need some Greek vocabulary. And there is a parallel Greek word to our English word, and that's the word anazao. Zao means I live, and ana means again. So anazao means live again, just like revive means live again. This Greek word is used five times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 7, verse 9, Paul explains that sin becomes alive again when our sinful hearts are confronted by God's good commandment. You may remember that passage. Uh, he is speaking metaphorically about how the commandment helps us know that we are sinners. It's revived. It becomes, our sin becomes alive again when we see the commandment because our hearts are sinful. Secondly, the word is used literally in Revelation 20, verse 5, and also in Romans 14, 9. In the first passage, it speaks of the dead bodies of unbelievers becoming alive again in resurrection in preparation for their judgment. And the verse in Romans is a reference to the resurrection of the body of Christ. So these bodies are literally, physically becoming alive again in these passages. The last two usages are in a passage that applies directly to the answer to our question about what revival is. And they're located in Luke chapter 15. Turn with me to Luke 15. Luke 15 is used by the Lord Jesus in his parable about about the prodigal son. Uh, I'm sorry, this, this word revive is used by the Lord Jesus in his parable about the prodigal son. So you'll remember the story. A younger son has greedily demanded his inheritance from a loving father prematurely, and upon receiving it, he wastes it on all his riotous living. Uh, look with me at verse 13 of Luke 15. It says, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So that sets the stage for the usage of our word. Starving with less food than the pigs he fed, the younger son returns to the loving arms of his father who exclaims in verse 24, let's go there, for this my son was dead. 
and is alive again. That's our word. Anazao. He was lost and is found. And he repeats this description of this happy turn of events in verse 32, where it says it was meet that we should... Uh, the father, of course, is here speaking to the older brother. He says it was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again. He's revived and was lost and is found. Alright, so the parable teaches us that to be lost from the father is to be spiritually dead, and to be found by the Father is to be revived. So revival, the word means to live again, and how that's accomplished, it's accomplished when the Father finds the prodigal. So a vocabulary lesson on the word revival has taught us that there's a kind of power available to spiritually dead people that can make them live again. Prodigals who are greedy, riotous, wasteful, selfish, and destitute can find forgiveness in the love of a once-betrayed father. He finds them. Revival is the power of God's love for sinners and of his joy at their repentance, which is able to make them live again. Not the context of this parable that the Lord is uh, telling his audience. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And then he spake this parable unto them. He spoke of lost things, including the lost son. Uh, beginning in verse 11. And then in verse 10 we read this about our Lord. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And so I say again, revival is the power of God's love for sinners and of his joy at their repentance, which is able to make them live again. He can find the prodigal. Any questions about the meaning of the word? All right, there's not going to be a quiz. We're just going to all pass English class, all right? We're going to go on to art class. And uh, what, does, what are some pictures of revival in the Scripture? So another close parallel to the word revival in Scripture is the word regenerate. Regenerate means to give birth again, just like revive means to live again. And the passage where we learn the most about being born again, of course, is John chapter 3, where Jesus told the Jewish religious leader Nicodemus, you must be born again. So when Nicodemus asked what that meant, it confused him. Jesus, Jesus marveled that he was a teacher of the Old Testament and didn't understand what he was talking about. In his answer to Nicodemus, Jesus pointed to two pictures of regeneration or revival we find in the Old Testament. Being born of water and being born of the Spirit or of the wind. Being born of water. How water creates new life. And being born of wind. There's an illustration in the Old Testament about wind bringing new life. And these are pictures 
of God's work of revival. We're going to look at those in more detail. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 37. We'll start with a wind picture first. Ezekiel 37, I'll read the first uh, 14 verses here. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This message isn't really going to cover the means of revival, but it's very important to understand the proper means of revival. And here's the first, prophesy, let those bones hear the word of the Lord, says the Lord. And then verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. And then he said unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say unto the wind, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. And here I think we have a picture of a prayer to the Holy Spirit, which creates the new life. After the prophesying of the Word of God to the bones, there's a, there's a prophesying to the wind. A need for the wind to come and give breath. And Jesus mentioned to Nicodemus that the wind blows where it will. And we can see the effect of it, but we don't know where it's going. And so we have this wonderful picture painted for us of what God can do. So verse 10 says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. And he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. And bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. All right, so the ultimate salvation of the nation of Israel is here described in terms of the power of wind breath, and spirit. So we see something again of the means of revival here, the prophesying of verse 4 and the praying to the wind of verse 9. And Jesus told Nicodemus that the wind blows where it wants to when people are born again. 
Now the second Old Testament picture of regeneration that Jesus refers to is water. Born of water and of wind, he says. Uh, We find water as a picture of living again in the form of rain showers as well as dew in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 34.26 promises there shall be showers of blessing. And when revival comes, that's the showers. That promise specifically is for Israel's future again when the Lord makes the nation spiritually alive. Psalm 133, quoted by Brother Mark earlier today, speaks of the Lord's commanding the blessing of eternal life in terms of a refreshing dew. It says it's like the oil that ran down Aaron's beard, but also like the dew of Hermon, which refreshed the dry land. And so the oil of this psalm reminds us that it is the work of God's Spirit, and the psalm also teaches us that this blessed dew looks for a place where brethren dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, and not fake unity, as we heard this morning. <laughs> Amen. May I ask a question? Yes, you sure can. Thank you. Um, so, the dry bones... Uh, is that the non-believers of Israel um, are being revived? Or is that when Jesus comes back, we all go up back up? I think the prophecy specifically refers to believing Israel being resurrected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had heard when he was speaking to Nicodemus, so being born of the water, that's not being born from the female water that's the right. water being baptized yeah water. so well this is my interpretation that he's actually using old testament pictures of a work of god's spirit so the phrase born of water and of the spirit in our king james version actually uh, is a grammatical construction which means that he's referring to the same thing so they're so. born from our mother but then we're born again through the Spirit. Well, born, born of water being this Old Testament picture of the showers of blessing. Okay. Uh, just another metaphor for the work of the Holy Spirit, the dew of Hermon that refreshes the ground. In other words, this is all referring to the Holy Spirit's work. And then born of the Spirit, I think Jesus may have been referring to the wind because he talked about the wind that blows where it will. It's the same word in Greek. And so uh, he's using these Old Testament pictures to say that, Nicodemus, you should know about this. You should know about the need for the Holy Spirit to bring new life. And you should apply it to your own life that you must be born again. And so I'm calling these the uh, pictures of revival in the Old Testament. Good question. Sorry about the lack of clarity there. Any, any other questions in that regard? This is art class. Art class can be a little less uh, exact than um, English class at times. So Jesus' rebuke of him, you should have known this, would refer to his ability to have understood those Old Testament texts. Right. That's right. And that the same spirit that revives the bones of Israel out of their graves someday, that was an application of a greater power to just give life that's described in Ezekiel chapter 37 
of uh, the Spirit and of the Word of God. And I know it's off topic. Is there any was 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 Nicodemus born again? I mean, I know he was the one who yeah Jesus. There's some indication that he, that he was yes. Can't looking forward to meeting everybody. <laughs> That's right. Amen. <laughs> Very good. Any other questions about art class? I'm not very artistic, by the way. So, <laughs> All right, let's go on to math class. What are the numbers of revival in Scripture? I mentioned earlier that Jonathan Edwards' church first experienced revival in 1734 to 35. In 1736, he published an account of these blessings titled faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages. That phrase, many hundreds of souls, is striking because at the time, Northampton only had 200 residents total. I was in the middle of uh, reading some of this history when my wife and I were called to visit a, a lady with cancer, a um, friend of somebody in our church, and a witness to her husband who needed to know the Lord, and they happened to live in a neighborhood in New Boston, small little New Boston, that uh, was hidden out in the woods and I didn't even know existed after being there all these many years, to my shame. Uh, but we were surprised that there were so many houses that we didn't know about. And my wife remarked to me, uh, Kevin, wouldn't it be neat? Oh, no, she said, Kevin, all of these families need a good church. And she was right about that. Because of the reading that I had been doing about Northampton, I said, if we have revival tomorrow, all of these people are going to be in a good church like ours. That's what revival the numbers of revival are like. Imagine a world in which one after another, all of those on your church's prayer list for salvation began coming to Christ. And not only coming to Christ, but asking to be baptized and to join your church. And imagine that they became disciple makers themselves so that there was this multiplying effect when it comes to the Word of God, the disciples of Christ, and local churches like ours. That is the mathematics of revival. Those are its numbers. We see this truth especially in the ministry of the early church in Acts. We're told in Acts 6, 1 and 7, that the number of disciples multiplied. And then we are told in Acts 9, 31, that local churches multiplied. And finally, in Acts 12, 24, we learn that the Word of God multiplied. <clears throat> that is the power of revival. And God's joy and love and the salvation of sinners makes this happen. These are the numbers that the wind and the water can produce. The multiplication. Many hundreds of souls in a town of 200, got saved in Northampton. Any questions about the mathematics of revival? <laughs> Pretty clear, that isn't it? Was easy. <laughs> yeah, that one was easy. 
All right, we're going to go to science class now. And here we get into what Jonathan Edwards told the students and faculty of Yale. I take my reference to Marx. Uh, I ask the question, what are the marks of revival in Scripture as we consider the science uh, viewpoint of revival? What are the marks of revival? And I take my reference to Marx from Edwards's address to Yale. In the same month his address was published, David Brainerd was expelled from Yale for mentioning in private to one of his fellow students that he believed that a tutor of theirs was as, quote, destitute of grace as this chair, end quote. And it's probably one of these hard metal chairs, too. <laughs> he got expelled because it got out that uh, he criticized his teacher's spiritual condition. Congregationalists were becoming divided by the revival. Old lights against new lights. And Edwards, who would later house Brainerd during his sickness and publish his diary, spoke of the distinguishing marks of true revival, actually to defend the work that had been going on from its critics. And he turned to 1 John 4 and mentions five distinguishing marks of true revival. Number one, True revival, let's see, yeah, it sits there. True revival raises the esteem of people for Jesus Christ. And he referred, let's go back to 1 John chapter 4. True revival raises the esteem of people for Jesus Christ. And he referred to verses 1 through 3 in this regard. Said, beloved, believe, it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. It's not enough that YouTube's excited about what's going on here. Okay. And here's why. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Verse 15 of the chapter says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. So true revival raises the esteem of people for Jesus Christ. Edward says, said this on this point, said, quote, this implies a confessing not only that there was such a person who appeared in Palestine and did and suffered those things that are recorded of him, but that he was Christ, that is the Son of God, appointed to be Lord and Savior, as the name Jesus Christ implies, end quote. I spent some, some time studying the Jesus people and the Jesus movement, and one of the striking things about that study is that I've never, I haven't found the word Christ in all that I've read or heard uh, about and from uh, the Jesus movement. You mean the one in the 70s, 70s, 1976? Yeah, the Abdali. late 60s, uh, or very early 70s. They did a movie on it? Yeah, there was a couple movies. They never talk about Christ? They just 
They talk about Jesus. But not Jesus Christ. Christ. Yeah, John wrote his gospel for the explicit purpose of convincing people that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so that believing we can have life in his name. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He's, he's not just Jesus. He's Jesus Christ, the right. Son of God. Okay, and, okay. Uh, the mediator between God and man. So true revival raises the esteem of people for Jesus Christ. Which would mean that false revival tends to humanize Christ. Or mitigate his... Uh, what's the opposite of esteem? Lower. Uh, our view of Jesus Christ vis-a-vis the scripture. Maybe overemphasize his humanity to the neglect of his glory and his de- deity. So like um, the Chosen? Have you seen the Chosen? I have not seen the Chosen, but yes. that would be a good example. I think you've yeah, got some insight what, there. You know, for, for people who see God as this evil God, punishing God, so, because I've watched it, um, so yeah, it, human, it, it, it helps those who see the, you know, the big angry wrath of God and helps them to see, oh, so Jesus walked on the earth and he was kind and, right. you know, so, I mean, and I, I don't know, whatever will plant the seed and God willing, you know, when the seed is planted, God will lead them to the correct teaching, you know. You, God's word is powerful, and where there's God's word in that program, it can do some amazing things. But the, I think your insight about its emphasis on the humanity of Christ, having watched it yourself, uh, it is something that the, yes, he suffered. He was in pain. Um, what I what really pushed me away from it, though, and he's not doing it anymore. Jonathan Rumi is the actor, and he has his YouTube page, whatever, and he prays to Mary and the rosary, and I, so of course, okay. I commented, wait, wait, where does it say that in the Bible that we have to do that? So it, You know, at our officers' meeting, we came pretty close to doing a workshop on the chosen, and now we don't have to, because, <laughs> Elaine, you've uh, clued us in act, on it. I appreciate is, that. Is Those are good insights. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to the second, uh, or the other issues here. This is a second mark of true revival according to Edwards. True revival diminishes the hold of Satan's kingdom on the lives of people. So 1 John 4 verses 4 and 5 are the verses he referred to in this regard. They say, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who's that? Who's he that is in the world? That's right, Satan. So they are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world heareth them. And Edward said in this regard, quote, The influence of the Spirit of God is yet more abundantly manifest if persons have their hearts drawn off from the world and weaned from the objects of their worldly lusts and taken off from worldly pursuits by the sense that they have of the excellency of divine things and the affection they have to those spiritual enjoyments of another world that are promised in the gospel, end quote. 
And so there is this diminishing of the hold of Satan's kingdom on the lives of people who are truly revived. Number three, third mark, true revival causes people to love and trust the Holy Scriptures, says Edwards. He refers to 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, the first part of that verse, where the Apostle John says, We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. And from that, Edwards concludes that true revival causes people to love and trust the Holy Scriptures. He had this to say specifically about it, quote, The Apostle's argument here equally reaches all that in the same sense are of God, that is, all those that God has appointed and inspired to deliver to His church its rule of faith and practice, all the prophets and apostles whose doctrine God has made the foundation on which He has built His church, as in Ephesians 2.20, in a word, all the penmen of Holy Scriptures, end quote. One of the major features of false revival historically has been extra-biblical revelation, charismaticism, Pentecostalism. If you want to ask Jonathan Edwards about this question, this is what he's going to tell you. True revival causes people to love and trust the Holy Scriptures. Scriptures alone. Year of God, little children. I'm sorry, uh, verse 6. We are of God, says the Apostle. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. And if we're too busy for our Bibles because we've got a lot of other sources of revelation going on, it's not a good sign that true revival is happening. All right, a fourth mark of true revival from Jonathan Edwards is that true revival causes people to love truth and reject error. And he referred to the end of verse 6 in this regard, which says, Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, truth versus error. True revival causes people to love the truth. You know, the the category truth is broader than the scriptures, isn't it? Um, There's truth and error in politics. There's truth and error in other areas of life, which are not mentioned in the scripture. I think Edwards may have been referring to this in a broad sense. And so he says, whatever spirit removes our darkness and brings us to the light, undeceives us, and by convincing us of the truth, doth us a kindness. If I am brought to a sight of truth, and am made sensible of things as they really are, my duty is immediately to thank God for it, end quote. And here's another reason why I think it's so very important not to be social media or mainstream media driven in our assessment of men and movements. Certainly not in our assessment of whether a revival is happening or not. 
Why? Because there's a spirit of error in mainstream media and social media. A lot of social media is censored. There are algorithms to make sure that some messages get through and others do not. Uh, the camera only shows so much and it's edited such that uh, whoever has a message that they want to convey and an agenda that they want to accomplish is served. And so true revival, though, causes people to love truth and reject error. They don't want to get to the bottom of things. In Arizona, they would have revivals. So it would be big tents. It's like it's 85 degrees there at night right now. So, um, and they, I, I never really knew what it meant, but they'd have these big revival tents. And now I wonder, are they doing the Jesus Revolution revival? Are they doing the Jesus Christ? Or, you know? Yeah, you have to ask these questions about it. Yeah, very good. All right, and then the last mark that Edwards mentioned was that true revival causes people to love God and the brethren. He referred to uh, verses 7 and 8 of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. My flesh can't do that, by the way, nor can yours. This is a fruit of the Spirit, a work of revival. So Edwards emphasized this to the audience there at Yale. He said this about it, quote, The surest character of true divine supernatural love, distinguishing it from counterfeits that arise from a natural self-love, is that the Christian, Christian virtue of Humility shines in it, that which above all others renounces, abases, and annihilates what we term self. <laughs> that just hits me right between the eyes about my need for revival. And I know you're my brother and sister in that regard as well. All right, we're going to just conclude with an answer then to our question, what is revival? It's kind of a long one. Bear with me here, but I would suggest this. Revival is a work of the Holy Spirit by which he causes dead and dying souls to live again spiritually, expressing the Father's love for sinners and his joy in their salvation, blowing powerfully like wind and descending refreshingly like rain, multiplying the word of God, disciples of Christ, and local churches, and marking these multiplied disciples and churches with the exaltation of Jesus Christ, lastingly change lives, hunger for their Bibles, a commitment to truth over falsehood, and a selfless love for God and the brethren. 